Director of YISA, the Yale Initiative for the Interdisciplinary Study of Anti-Semitism. Um, thank you all very much for coming to this conference, which is called uh, The Psychological Impact of the Threat of Contemporary Genocidal Anti-Semitism from Denial and Paralysis to Understanding the Challenge. And it's a very significant challenge. This is called the James Sachs Conference, and it's named after Dr. Sachs from Chicago, who uh, graciously supported this uh, event uh, through the ADL and the Anti-Defamation League, and Stacy is here from the ADL with some of her colleagues, and um, we're grateful for Dr. Sachs's support of the conference and also for one of our researchers who will present today, Edith Shalev, and for the ADL's involvement uh, with this conference, uh, with our research and with other projects. Uh, so we're honored that members are here, and we're honored that to, to be able to do work with, um, with the ADL. So, in a sense, I'm going to give a small sort of uh, introductory remarks about the subject at hand and try to frame it from the perspective of YISA. And YISA is an international, sorry, an interdisciplinary research center focused on anti-Semitism. Yidit um, Shalev is one of our uh, resident experts in psychology. Uh, but as a rule, we in, the, in the YISA are not uh, familiar in, in, in any great way with the literature and the schools of thought on psychology and psychiatry. And in a sense, we, we turn to you, and we turn to the, the community of scholars that are experts in this area, and we are posing an urgent question and an urgent challenge to you. And in a sense, what I would like to do is sort of put into a context what we're dealing with and set the context for today's discussion uh, on a very important and troubling and I would say urgent matter. Um, by coincidence, we didn't plan this uh, purposely, but we know today in Israel's Memorial Day, and in a few hours Israel will move from a period of mourning for its losses of soldiers, but also its losses of victims of terror, uh, and move into a, a period of celebration. Um, and I guess it's poignant that we're here discussing these issues in light of that. I, I turn to the community here of, of academic scholars dealing with psychology and psychiatry, and I pose the question. We're living in a time where genocidal anti-Semitism is a reality. We all sort of know it, we, but we don't really speak about it. Um, and I say that we, in terms of our the Jewish community, leaders uh, in the Western world seem to turn a blind eye to this. You know, the old adage that denial ain't just a river in Egypt seems to be pervasive. And I think scholars connected to trying to educate people on, on contemporary forms of anti-Semitism often speak to people, speak to students, speak to the public, and when we speak to people, it's often it's as if the light bulb in the brain and the light bulb in the eyes don't click on. That if we speak about other forms of discrimination or other social problems and social issues or behavioral problems, it makes often for great conversation and great seminar presentations, but very often when it comes to the issue of anti-Semitism, there's a blank. And this is why we named the conference, uh, including the notions of denial and the notions of paralysis. Elie Wiesel was here a year ago, and I often tell this story, and he spoke at the law school. And Elie Wiesel spoke about the possibility of another Holocaust against the Jewish people, with the rise of radical Islam and the social movement that is 
openly and honestly and consistently dedicated to the eradication of Jewish self-determination, if not Jewish people, in what they consider to be holy Islamic land. If you read about their policy statements, their military policy, their social policy, their ideology, their sermons in their mosques repeatedly and repeatedly, they're very clear, they're very open, they're very consistent, and they're straight up. And it's yet we, as intellectuals, often can't seem to look into the abyss of this, of this problem. So Elie Wiesel was at Yale University, and he spoke about the possibility of another Holocaust. And for me, I grew up in Montreal, and Elie Wiesel has strong connections to Montreal, and I would hear him speak uh, several times a year growing up. And uh, for me, Elie Wiesel not only symbolized a survivor of the Holocaust or a witness of the Holocaust, but he also, to me, sort of symbolized the humility and wisdom of the great rabbis, of the great tradition of rabbis. And he also was very much dedicated to notions of human rights and, and, and narrowing the gap between being an innocent bystander in the face of injustice and doing something. And not to be a passive observer, but to do. And this is a, a very important part of, of Jewish ethics, among, among other type of ethics, including human rights and international law, or the spirit of it. So to see Elie Wiesel speak to the Yale Law School about the possibility of another Holocaust was, uh, the indignity of it was, was pathetic. That here he was in his lifetime approaching 80 years old, and this is what he had to say to the Yale students and faculty. But the thing that really uh, got me at a profound level is the fact that he said the thing that really bothers him, as if this was not enough, the thing that really bothers him is that people are silent. And he said, where are the students? And where are the faculty? And where are the political leaders? And nobody <coughs> is engaging this issue. And that the silence really disturbs them. And I think in the words of Martin Luther King, it's not the behavior or the actions of the few bad people but that disturbs them or bothers them, but it's the inaction of the vast majority of good people that is dangerous. And I think we see this inaction even, I would say, scholars who study anti-Semitism cannot bring themselves to say, at times, that this is beyond the red line, that this is a form of anti-Semitism that needs to be stopped. We're sort of entered into this postmodern notion of all narratives are equal, and you know, the narrative of the anti-Semite and the genocidal anti-Semite somehow is equal to that of an Israeli child having pizza or going to a discotheque. That the, the notions of, of truth and right seem to be very much upside down. I had a similar experience meeting Natan Sharansky. And Natan Sharansky, I met him in Israel. Natan Sharansky said that when he was in, a sol in solidarity confinement in a Soviet prison on a hunger strike, he knew that one day he'd be free in Jerusalem because, as he put it, housewives and students were marching in the streets of Western Europe and North America. And he knew one day he'd be free. He also asked me why the silence in North America and Western Europe. Why are students and, and scholars and intellectuals in the community marching in the streets dealing with radical Islam and its genocidal anti-Semitism? And these are questions which I, I, I pose to you today. Um, how can we get people to, to look at these issues in a, in a rational, concrete manner? And once we look at the issues, perhaps we can come up with, with solutions.
I just want to read to you some of the statements which I, I assume that many people here know. The President, the Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, said on August the 14th, 2006, and I quote, There is only one solution to the Middle East problem, namely, the annihilation and destruction of the Jewish state. Straight up. There's no problems with translation on this quote. And I could read, as you know, many quotes. And you can look at the Hamas Charter, a, a, uh, now is becoming a state actor, it used to be a non-state actor, and, and, a, and uh, an organization supported militarily, ideologically, and financially by Iran. If you read the Charter, the Hamas Charter, and I urge everybody to read it, it'll take you 15 or 20 minutes tonight, you can Google it, it's available in many languages. And they too call, in black and white, for the destruction of not only the Jewish state and the Zionist entity, but for the killing, in black and white, of Jewish people. The, a, a social movement which is geared to eradicating the Middle East of all outside influences of Jews, Zionists, Israelis, Christians, Crusaders, take as its theme in its constitution, in its founding document, it's not the rantings and ravings of one extremist or an extreme wing of the party, but fused throughout the charter are the, 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 the narrative, if you will, of the protocols of the elders of Zion. This is the theme. They take the most pernicious form of European genocidal anti-Semitism, and this forms the basis of their constitution and their raison d'etre. Uh, I was recently in Geneva at, at the UN conference on racism, and I spoke to and met with many Iranians, and, and I listened to them. I asked them, what do they think of Israel? What do they think of Jews? What do they think of a future of the Middle East? Is there possibilities of peace? And I just listened. I didn't argue and engage in debate. And these people, as far as I can tell, are true believers. They're on a mission. And for them, it would be a great contribution to humanity to rid the world of Israel and to rid the, the, the Middle East of Jewish people in its midst. And when Ahmadinejad comes to the United Nations and uses the platform to spread the protocols of the elders of Zion, and when he is the only leader of the world that stands at the podium and speaks to power and speaks to the Jewish conspiratorial power, it resonates. At one level there was a victory, at one level European countries finally, after eight years of people tirelessly trying to get European leaders to boycott. Some countries boycotted the, the conference, some further countries walked out when Ahmadinejad started to spew his genocidal anti-Semitism. But it was after eight years of lobbying they finally, some of these countries just walked out on a speech but participated in the conference. Which is a small victory, I suspect. But at the same time, he represents the, in a sense, the. In, in his rhetoric, is representing the disenfranchised and the marginalized, and it's having an impact. When secular South Africans were at a rally listening to the Deputy Foreign Minister speak, and she spoke about many issues, but when she spoke about how the Jews control and are corrupting American financial powers, 16 to 18,000 people gave her a long standing ovation. This is in South Africa. So these Narratives, if you will, are permeating uh, public culture in too many places. So the challenge for you today, through, through our discussions, through the papers, through our, our conversation and questions and answers, is what can we do to get 
scholars, to get policymakers to take these issues seriously. And I suspect I'm not in the medical field, but I think when, when, when there's a problem, you need to really examine the issues and the problem fully, rationally, in a concrete way. And once we understand the problem, perhaps we can come up with solutions. But it seems to me that we're stuck in denial, we're stuck in paralysis. So I hope through our discussion that we can try and figure ways to go forward. So, so I'm sure we're going to be in for a, a productive day with the, with the scholars who are here. So the first speaker and the keynote speaker today, we're very honored that uh, he's here with us, Stephen Hopeful, will speak today. The title of this paper is called The Impact of Terrorism and War on Tearing the Self and the Fabric of Society. Professor Hopeful is the John Marjorie Weinberg Presidential Professor and Chair of the Department of Behavioral Sciences at Rush University's Medical Center, where he frequently leads workshops and lectures. Uh, previously, he was a distinguished professor of psychology at Kent State University and the director of applied, the Applied Psychology Center and the SUMA KSU Center for the Treatment and Study of Traumatic Stress at Kent State University. He was formerly at Tel Aviv and Ben-Gurion University and was the co-chair of the American Psychological Association Commission on Stress and War during, during the Operation Desert Storm and he helped to plan for the prevention of prolonged distress among military personnel and their families. He has published widely on, on many issues, uh, including the author of a book um, which was entitled Stress, Social Support and Women, The Traumatic Street, The Ecology of Stress and Stress Culture and Community. And he's written over 180 uh, academic journals and chapters and edited volumes and books. So it's really an honor and a pleasure that you are here with us today. Well, I appreciate uh, being invited. Thank you very much. The, um, when when uh, Charles invited me, and I was going off to Australia to work on the fires, so, um, and he said, come and speak about uh, uh, anti-Semitism. I, I, I sent him an email back. Thank you. Uh, it's very honorable to always be invited to Yale, but um, I'm not a scholar of anti-Semitism. He said, well, come anyway, we'll figure out how it relates. Which is a Jewish theme. Everything relates in one way. Anti-Semitism and sort of the Jewish joke of it, which is the humor to, to deal with things. I also, um, you know, I, I've always been aware that anti-Semitism exists. Um, in a sense, it's never been a problem for me. I grew up uh, um, in the inner city of Chicago in a very rough neighborhood where uh, there were uh, mainly elderly Jews left and, and, uh, and poor Jews. But we fought, and, and luckily we had uh, uh, Dean Jacoby, a uh, name not familiar with you, he's not cited in literature, he was just the toughest goddamn kid, and luckily he was Jewish. And that sort of tilted the balance sort of to even. So, uh, so we spent uh, fighting, and uh, I often say prayers for Gene Jacoby because I probably literally might not have gotten out of there without him. And then I was an officer in the Israeli army dealing with people who were trying to kill us and annihilate the Jewish state, and uh, it was my job to help kill them. Um, not out of malice. Uh, uh, there's a very strange um, uh, psyche within the Israeli ar army. Um, 
uh, Torah Haneshek, the purity of, of arms, which they teach you from the first time they put a weapon in your hands that you should never use a weapon for, for an impure act. And that's a very hard concept to, to wrap your, your brain around. Um, but it's the idea of, of uh, in defense, yes, and, and never out of, of hatred uh, and anger. It's, it's very hard, though, not to um, be attacked, to experience losses, and, um, and not feel hatred and anger. This uh, incredible painting by Dali, which is of, of war. Dali couldn't decide on, or he would, at least wouldn't say, which side of the Spanish Civil War uh, he was uh, he was on, but what he did uh, for, but what he did say in this painting is that war uh, eats of itself, and that's the idea of of, the, of this uh, of this grotesque painting that war eats the human body and spirit and soul. Okay, now this my own computer's not working. Hold on. Okay, just um, obviously research like this goes on with many colleagues around the world. I think I want to point out my colleague uh, Daphna Kennedy Nisim at the University of Haifa, who's a political scientist. I'm going to take you through some theory, some psychological theory that I've developed over the years, and then through some studies of terrorism and war that seem to support the theory and perhaps helps in an understanding of, of what is going on. Uh, conservation resource theory has become one of the two leading theories of stress. So stress is obviously a very big topic. It's you can't get through a conversation or a Time magazine or a Newsweek or a coffee clutch without discussing it. There are two major theories of stress, so this is one of them. The first part of the theory says that individuals, that is all of us, strive to obtain, retain, foster, and protect those things that we value. And therefore, people are directed to cultivate resources even when stress is not occurring. So we're trying to accumulate those things that, that we highly value. Then, when threat of resource loss or loss occurs, people enter a different kind of phase in which they mobilize resources, for what reason? To offset, limit, or reverse impending or actualized loss. Because resource loss meant threat to survival for evolutionary history and due to social conflict and issues of territoriality, we are tuned to be in a defensive mode regarding resource protection and fear of loss. Said another way, loss spells the end of survival. And therefore, from the very core of all levels of neurology, from basic brain to all the way up to precortex, it is on it, we must be attuned to loss first and foremost. What that means is over-attuned to loss first and foremost. What that also means by implication is that gain hardly matters to survival. What matters is not losing. At the, at the point of input of our brain, and therefore if our brain, our biology, and therefore if our biology, our psychology, and therefore if our psychology, our culture. What I mean by resources are those things that we value. They're of course perceived, but first of all, the perceptions of what is a resource, what is really important to us, what is valued, is reality-based. So there is survival-based, family-based, human-based. We, we, these are not just things in their head. They're not narratives. Secondly, appraisals are generally products of real occurrences. 
not social constructions. So the things we appraise, the threats that go on, are real. Now, I said earlier we are hypersensitive to threats, but the threats still are, are really out there. Then the social constructions that exist tend to be shared. So we tend to be stressed about the same things because if you take ideologies like hatred, like the Jew, uh, Arabs, the terrorists, these are social constructions and the media and, and dialogue then creates a common social theme. So much so that, uh, uh, just to, to step aside, just to give you an example of this, when I'm asked today whether I'm a liberal or a conservative, um, I can't answer the question because for me it depends on, on, on which theme you're talking about and even pragmatically which situation you're talking about. But that's not allowed at, at places like Yale, where, where there's, you're supposed to be a, 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 you're a lefty or, or the right, the center, uh, they. Well, they implies that there's a, a more monolithic theme, but the social constructions actually move us in very odd um, ways uh, that are actually uh, uh, not consistent with themes. Hence, appraisals do not differ greatly for people for at least major stressors. So that's one of the first and major points. I'll say this on a very simple level. For the most part, you are stressed out about the same things that I am stressed out about if those things were happening to me, or my things were happening to you, for the most part. Otherwise, and why this particular painting? Well, if it wasn't true that we share these common themes of appraisal of what is stressful, uh, for one thing, this would not be art. Because I could have drawn and you'd say, oh, I could have done that. Well, I couldn't have done this, and you probably couldn't have either. It's a great Goya painting. Also, the themes in it speak to you across uh, hundreds of years. Even so much so, if you have a little bit of more uh, uh, art appreciation, you know this. But if not, uh, if, you, if you don't spend your time looking at pieces of art, look at the soldiers. Uh, before the machine age, they are robotic. So the idea of being an automaton serving the state is already there before there is such a concept as automatons. So these are basic themes that then carry across, and, and of course the cry for, for help, and uh, that's there on the receiving side of these bullets, speaks across the generations. Said by Geertz, in another way, human thought is both social and public. Its natural habitat is the house yard, the marketplace, and the town square. Thinking consists not of happenings in the head, but on a traffic and significant shared symbols. So in other words, we have these symbols and they become shared. The terrorists. Well, when we study terrorism in Palestine, the Palestinian Authority, uh, we, they call what the, the Jewish state does to them terrorism. And that's the accepted use of the term. Uh, and uh, there's I guess now a famous expression, uh, your terrorist is my freedom fighter. But shared within a context, this becomes an absolute, unquestionable. As uh, um, Charles pointed out, among, among these Iranians, this, these are truth. This becomes a truth. This becomes, uh, they, they wonder how you could think otherwise. 
So what I mean by resources, then, just to take it a step further, are these objects, conditions, personal characteristics, or energies. Which ones? Because you could say that, well, tulip plane is a resource. No, the ones that we centrally value, and the ones that are critical especially for allowing us to obtain, retain, and foster, and protect, those things that we centrally value. What's most important to you not to lose? Family. Health. Life itself. Self-esteem. Uh, the set is actually fairly small and centralized. These resources also are socially interconnected. And even individual resources such as self-esteem are linked to social conditions. So I have self-esteem because I am the CEO of a large bank. And then the world turns a step and now I am in disgrace. So all that self-esteem is based, even though it seems, as the author once called it, Masters of the Universe, becomes uh, 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 perhaps an uh, uh, inmate in prison. Also, very important that life events are too static as units. And so, in other words, uh, just by way of example, um, War itself is not necessarily stressful. Or you could say that uh, it felt very safe in Israel. If you yourself are in a protected position, and it's not happening to you, or you are under particular threat, uh, maybe an opportunity to make money. To uh, sex tends to get better during war. You know, there's all kinds of good outcomes that could come out of it. It depends on where your place is amidst. The theater of war. Are you in the theater of war or are you outside the theater? Uh, divorce. Divorce is not necessarily stressful. If you get rid of the person who's been making you crazy and, and who's abusive, and you go to someone who's wonderful and esteems you and thinks you're the most wonderful person on earth, that's, that's, a, that's a happy day. Okay. So it depends on, on what are the exchange of resources, the degree of loss of resources that are going on. Um, just very quickly, you can read them. These are the resource types. You have object resources, condition resources, personal resources, and energy resources. <coughs> and again, they are quite universal. So then what is stress? Well, stress occurs then in circumstances that represent a threat of loss or actual loss of the resources that are required or the endpoints that are necessary for what? Well, to sustain a concept that I wish there was one word for it, uh, the individual nested in family, nested in tribe. Because we are all three of these things at once. We are biologically so, and we're psychologically so. I'll give you just a quick example of uh, um, uh, very much involved in, in individual stuff. Uh, did my last paper get accepted? Uh, um, can I buy a certain shirt? Um, things about myself. And uh, then you get a call that uh, you, your child is sick, but uh, it looks okay. Now I'm individual nested in family. Okay. Uh, now I get another call, go to the hospital, God forbid, uh, uh, child's really sick. But now all those individual things are, are just absent from my psyche and I'm entirely involved in this nexus of, of family. Uh, tribe is, in a sense, more interesting. Uh, if you're a soldier, you're very much involved in tribe, uh, but we see it with uh, sports. 
people wearing, covering themselves and getting killing over their uh, sports team. Also saw it on September 11th. Um, I'm not the kind of, um, I believe I'm very patriotic, but I'm not the kind of American that believes you have to put a flag on your house. When September 11th occurred, for some reason I found six or seven smallish flags in my garage, must have been from my kids from some school thing. I stuck six or seven flags on my front lawn and they stood there for two months. Because my tribe was attacked. And one of my colleagues came to work crying the next day and, and a lot of us were upset, I'm sure you were. But she said, what I'm really upset about is I want to kill them, and I'm a liberal, and I'm not supposed to want to kill them, and I don't even know who they are, but I know I want to kill them. Well, the tribe was attacked, and, she had, and it had cued into a very basic biology. Uh, so then, according to core theory, stress occurs in three circumstances. When these major resources are threatened with loss, when resources are actually lost, or where there is a failure to adequately gain resources following significant resource investment. I think the first two are completely clear, just very quickly. The third one, if, um, I always say if it's true of love, then, it, then it's true. If you invest in a marriage, we, we say I gave the best years of my life, and then something happens, that's, that's tragic, that's very stressful. But I know quite a few men who did not invest in their marriage, and then went off and found a younger woman, uh, and they were uh, not at all upset over the dissolution of their marriage, perhaps of their bank accounts, but not of their marriage. Uh, they hadn't invested. So, um, or those of you working on your doctor, perhaps, so you get a note from Yale, go home, you don't get it, why is that stressful? You didn't have the PhD before. Well, you had invested time and energy and effort, and those are already spent, and now you had made the investment and did not get back quid pro quo. And some things that we study are highly stressful, and uh, you know, I, um, I, I, I will study, and also perhaps what uh, I've always thought action was very important, so I also consult and work with governments and armies, and often find many of my friends say, wherever I'm going, that's a good place to be coming from, uh, although I tell them it's not causal. but. Many tragedies that we that are experienced in the world, it's incredible that people ever can get over these losses. Well, without boring you too much uh, over theory that might be out of the realm of what you're interested in studying, although I have to say core theory is, is used uh, today in economics and it's used actually in manufacturing in ways that I don't get. I was invited to give a talk and couldn't because I didn't understand how they were using it. Um, so it perhaps has some interest here outside of the field of psychology. As I said, resource loss is disproportionately more salient than resource gain. Uh, if you go away knowing nothing else from this talk, that's the critical point to get. And let me give just a few examples. You tell a child you're dumb. What is the exact opposite of you're dumb? You're smart. What's the psychological impact of the two? Much greater. for. Uh, 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 Many of us are still trying to publish papers getting over the teacher that told us uh, we were uh, dumb at one time. Uh, your lover tells you, I told you if it's true of love, it's true. Your lover tells you, you know what, you're not very good in bed. How many times would that person have to tell you you're done lying, you're the best ever to get over that? 30 years later, 
you'd still be in the back of your mind, or maybe in the front of your mind, if your relationship lasted, that would still be there. And the one bit of marital advice I give, I don't, I try not to give marital advice. As a psychologist, people are constantly asking for advice. They're not listening, they're not going to take the advice, but they're asking for it. But I always tell young men, if she asks you if, she, if her behind looks big in that dress, the answer is no. And I have some young men that are so naive that say, but what if it is? I say, no, you don't understand at all. The answer is no. Not possibly. Do not go there. Absolutely. She will never get over it, and you will never end suffering from it. Okay? Because loss is disproportionately more powerful than gain. Second, people must invest resources to protect against resource loss, recover from losses, and gain resources. When I have an insult to my esteem, I invest other assets of my esteem, or I invest social support and go to friends to boost me. If I get a paper rejected, well, I try to be a better husband and father. I can, I can try to balance. Maybe I'm a bad professor, but, I may, but I, I'm a good father. And, very interestingly, and we know this from neurological studies and psychological studies, that resource gain increases importance in the context of loss. That is, in when loss is pervasive, small gains become important. And we know this from neurological studies. They start lighting up the brain more, which is about the level of neurological study. What lights up, what doesn't, where does it light up? And it affects our psyche more. Otherwise, Gain is unimportant. And since we're at Yale and papers and all that, I'll give you just another example of this. If you've had a run of seven or eight papers accepted, you get another one in and you just, it doesn't even, you know, it's just, oh yeah, of course, of course. If you've had a run of seven or eight rejections, and by the way, this happens among the best of scholars, and you get a paper accepted, you go, yes, yes, it makes your day. Why the difference? It's the same paper accepted. Well, in the context of, of loss, gain becomes much more important. And of course, that's a minor loss, these papers rejected, because we're still not talking about, uh, well, unless you're going to pretend you're the loss of your job. Let me move into, uh, this just takes, before we start looking at terrorism and war, let me take you through one more step in the theory that's very important. What I've said is that resource loss is critical to the human brain, psyche, and culture, and the threat of loss. I've also said that we use resources to offset loss, right? Now, if I lose resources, and that's what's stressful, what happens at the second wave or iteration of the attack? I am less strong. And at the third, I am less strong. And the fourth, I'm even less strong than that. In other words, we lose resources at each turn of the cycle. And therefore, at each turn of the cycle, we are less able. And uh, our study shows very clearly and absolutely that if you experience loss without winning, because there is also a thing where you're hit and then you come back and you hit harder and win. That's not, you ultimately won there. If you experience loss, it is not true, the adage, that what does not kill you makes you stronger. Absolutely, on the level of your physical health and your psyche, every loss makes you weaker. If you have not come back and turned it into a win, into a game. 
Every loss increases your uh, incidence of heart disease. Every loss in increases inflammatory processes, which lead to all kinds of diseases, diabetes, heart disease, etc., etc. Every loss makes you psychologically weaker at the next turn if you have not turned it into a, a game. So we moved to September 11th in our study. This is actually a colleague of mine, so this is not one of my studies, but Sandra Galea and I worked together. Uh, they, studied, they studied 1,008 New York residents living below 110th Street, used random digit dyeing five to eight weeks after the attack. You all know this is Manhattan. It's sort of turned because uh, Manhattan's a little bit on angle, but we can live with that. First of all, uh, below Canal Street, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, the most common reaction to trauma, 20% of those residents south of Canal Street had PTSD. Now, on a normal day in New York City, about 1.5% of the population has PTSD. So that's about the baseline for PTSD in New York City. Um, North of Canal Street, south of 110th, 9.7%. Uh, and about 2% of that time in Kansas, 2 to 3%. So we can see that the closer you are to the epicenter, the more PTSD. Who's most affected? Well, Hispanic ethnicity, two times more likely to have PTSD than, than non-Hispanics, than whites. Uh, if, you, if you have prior stressors, this is about stress makes you uh, weaker. If you have just prior stressors in the last year, major stressors, uh, divorce, economic problems, health problems, you're four times more likely to have PTSD. That's a big difference, sir. If you lack social support, you're two and a half times, 2.3 times more likely to have PTSD. Now, if you have death of a family or friend during the attack, you're two times more likely to have PTSD. Seems low, but let's remember that this is back to the epicenter question. It's most likely going to be a distant relative when you're doing, this is a, a survey of all New Yorkers. So the chance that we're not talking, uh, probably there's a few sons, fathers, sisters here, but for the most part, this is an uncle or, or a cousin or a friend. Let's look at the next uh, couple things that are just very interesting. If you lost your job due to the attack, which are financial resources. Now, our, my resource model covers also self-esteem and these kinds of resources. But you might say the loss of a job, so what? Four and a half times more likely to have PTSD if you've lost your job during the attack. And if you just lost possessions due to the attack, you're four and a half times more likely. Or, said another way, loss of those things that are important to you, your resources, are twice more powerful than loss of a loved one that's not your brother, son, mother, sister. Um, I pay very attention to income, probably because I had a family that didn't have much of it. And always remember, what, what, the, the thing that, the word for work is livelihood, because that's what it is for most people. It is what allows them to live. And so, loss of possessions or loss of their job is a very, very dear, not simply materialistic kind of loss. 
Um, we then studied uh, people in New York. We went on to study them for um, from the, that four-month time to 16 months, looking at PTSD and depression. Again, phone survey technology using random digit dials. People were interviewed in English, Spanish, and surprised to me, uh, I, I figured that, that Chinese would be the third most common language, but the third and fourth were Mandarin and Cantonese, which is just interesting. Uh, here's the odds of PTSD compared to the low-risk group. Each time when you do odds ratios in medicine, uh, you compare them to low risk. Those people who had no loss, on, we had a simple questionnaire, 11 items of loss of resources. By definition, those people with no loss would call odds of one, because they're the lowest group. Those who have a simple score of two on our scale, and it's possible to score between zero and 22 on 11 items, because you could say no loss, a little loss, or a lot of loss. Those who have a score of two have about two times the odds of PTSD. Those who have a loss of five have about six times the odds of PTSD. Okay, now we're going to check if you're listening, because this is sort of like, for many of you, a lecture uh, uh, that you're unused to, because it, it might be out of your field. So it's back to freshman psychology, in a sense, because you've studied, you might have a PhD in, uh, and advanced studies in American history or Jewish studies, but uh, um, this is out of field. What are we going to see for the next one, for those with a high loss score? What are we going to see in terms of odds of PTSD? I'm sorry? High. High. That. 20 times. On this simple scale, it's said another way, it's a simple screening tool, 11 items. If you just went on TV and radio and put out that scale, you will have almost perfect prediction, because 20-fold is, is as good as you've ever seen in any academic paper. 20-fold means determinant. Now, you could say that that's kind of a weird way. Here's percent with diagnosis of PTSD and depression. And here we just take the scale, the same scale, simple scale, looking at resource loss, low, medium, and high. Just the equal groups. Low, medium, what's going to happen again with the high group? They just have a slightly higher score than the medium group. Very powerful prediction. Resource loss is what determines both PTSD and depression. It is, it is determined. Uh, just an interesting uh, point, probably maybe of less interest here. Those who try to grow from the experience, um, well, mid-level growth, to try and get stronger from it, if you do it a little bit, it looks okay, that's the middle group. If you do a lot of it, actually you get worse. So, trying to grow out of tragedy, it's a whole other lecture and theme, is usually a bad course. Now I want to move to the commune, and perhaps closer to the study of anti-Semitism, or, or, or isms in general. Uh, resource loss is overweighted for individuals, but we also know that in, from the group literature that groups do something called a risky shift. You've seen it at coffee clutch. People try to best each other as to how terrible it is. So if you think there's anti-Semitism, don't get into a coffee clutch with five other people who believe in anti-Semitism, because you'll think the Holocaust has, is occurring now, and you better get home and kiss your family goodbye. Because the, the 
everything escalates within the group. This is the psychology of the mob. So, so loss is powerful for the individual, it is ultra-powerful for the group. Also, because loss is overweighted, and because threat to loss of the tribe is part of the self, what's going to get evoked here? Well, these in-group, out-group themes. Tribal themes, which, if you remember earlier in my lecture, were, were kind of buried in the psyche. These get risen up to the top. Because we depend on the tribe to protect us when we get really, really threatened. So in-group, out-group divisions and themes, you, them, you know, uh, Boston, um, Patriots versus New York Giants, it, it becomes important, let alone real things that are important. Also, because people increase interconnections at time of loss, what we have is some reverse influences of social processes. Social processes tend to be supportive. We, we attachment theory, with some psychoanalysts here, there is nothing more basic to the human psyche than attachments. But these attachments tend to go haywire under times of severe threat and actually have reverse effect. Also, some other odd things occur here. Because you're not soldiers in the army, you lack practice coping repertoires for these kinds of situations. So you look to outside sources for solutions. I'm willing to bet that even among liberals, that most Americans actually look to President Bush, God save us, for guidance when September 11th occurred. Where else could you? He is the person you have to look to. And you look to outside sources. People suddenly, the synagogues filled and churches filled for the pulpit to explain to them the context of what's occurring in huge numbers. Also, a couple of other things go on psychologically. High stress engenders what we call cognitive narrowing. That is just at a time when you think I need to have a broad-based view of the world and of problems, I become more narrow. Why? Well, because when the saber-toothed tiger attack, you have to respond like this. Or if, if suddenly you're attacked from another tribe coming into your camp, there's no time for deliberation. The only time is to switch on survival mode and to act. And to act, you cannot be confused by the complexity of possibilities. You have to go with your instinct. And so our instincts push us. Uh, I have uh, all the New York. I have all the pages of the New York Times from several months after the attack of September 11th. And if you look at the public opinion polls, the American public strongly wanted Bush to attack someone immediately and in, in uh, over 70% of the US population. And it went on for several months. He actually showed uh, uh, quite a bit of leadership to actually resist the polls at that point. Because we want an easy solution. We don't want to look at the complexities of what terrorism is and what it might be. Uh, we want a simple solution. Uh, isolationism attack. Two easy solutions. Attack them. We don't know who they are. It's okay. Attack them. Oh, and by the way, uh, 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 another inter interesting part of the tribal, what was the American group, what subgroup in the United States 
made the biggest shift from, no, we shouldn't attack them, more isolationist ideas, more domestic policy, to kill them. I'm sorry? Soccer moms. Mothers of young children. That's who soccer moms are. Normally, couldn't care less about foreign policy. In the polls, made the larger shift from, I couldn't care less, to go kill them. I don't care who they are, they're threatening my children. Hence, media and political construals of events deeply affect people because we don't have a template. Um, it's very easy to have um, the simple solution. Um, how am I for time? I'm sorry, five more minutes, great. Um, well, what I can tell you about this meeting, I was in a meeting in which, in which um, the, the future chief of staff of the Israeli army was a, a, a mere um, a lieutenant general, not yet major general, and uh, it was, uh, they were being briefed on terrorism, and he uh, made a show with the ten or so foremost experts of terrorism in the room with the uh, 17 chiefs, of, uh, senior deciders of the Israeli military in the room. He made a show of not listening because he had a simple solution to, to errors. All they, what he said when it came to his chance to re respond was, all they understand is power. Well, this is the general that, of course, made a mess of the, of the second Israel-Lebanon war because uh, he didn't understand that they understood more than power. But he had a simple solution that guided him. It worked up into a point. So, when we get this threat, which we had no answers to, <coughs> A whole different part of ourselves opens up, and that is the threat to our mortality. And we respond with extreme protective views at this point. We make a very risky shift to the extreme. Or as the famous, if you know, blues, Lewis Allen song, sung by Billie Holiday, Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, the story of the African-American Holocaust. These are terrible photographs of lynchings in the United States. When a black was lynched, it wasn't enough just to hang them. Uh, they were almost always cleaved first, that is, torn asunder, asunder with a cleaver, and burned, uh, kept alive as long as possible. So a lynching would have been really a, a much more positive thing to have happened. The other reason we have these postcards is over 100,000 of them were sent in the U.S. mail. And these, I, I should have photographed the back of these because they say really telling things like, hi, Aunt Sophie, happy Thanksgiving, hope you come back for the next holidays. And the Postmaster General had to stop the sending of these because just like, uh, uh, not that, or, Holocaust is the same, but as the threat of genocide, uh, 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 anti-Semitism, uh, it just becomes 
the majority just become normalized to the situation, accepting of it. Uh, hence, Israelis showed pictures like this. They become, I'll go back to these, more incensed against Palestinians, against terrorists. And we have to remember that the other side, with even less censure, is showing these pictures. So each side has a media which is crystallizing the psychology of threat that the other side has on you. And what must you do when there are such threats? You must attack. Just to go, just want to point out this one more bit of data. Uh, here we studied a, a large segment of both Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel, so Arabs living in Israel. And what I just want to point out to you here is if, if you look at what happens, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists usually study depression and PTSD. But the only point I want to make here from this, I won't go through the statistics, is at the same time that depression and PTSD goes up as terrorism and war occur, for, oh, I'm sorry, this one's for, this one's Jews, I guess I just moved forward here. Uh, hatred of others, so they want to exclude Russian immigrants more. Hatred of an ethnic other. That idea of the, remember I said in-group, out-group. That other group becomes more threatening. You hate them more. You want to get rid of them. Dogmatism increases, and you increase your support for political violence. And by political violence, we meant extreme measures that would, all, all measures wouldn't be acceptable, uh, simply put, in the Geneva Convention. So extreme actions. And this is for Jews only. It also occurs certainly for Jews in their ethnic, the more they are threatened, the more they exclude others and want to hate them, hurt them, kill them, destroy them. Um, I'll let others who are more expert deal with the theme of, of, of anti-Semitism, but the I guess the takeaway line here is that those who are anti-Semitic somehow perceive a threat by us, by Jews. And then, because this threat is vague enough, you have a whole media construing events of the vague threat in a crystallized form that gives a simple solution. And those simple solutions tend to be very hard to penetrate because they are quite monolithic. I will tell you what the good news is. If you reverse what I've said, if you allow people to be safe, if you allow people to progress and to thrive, the tribal level of ourselves becomes turned off. I heat up about my sports team only if the sports team is important to me and only at the end of the season. I, when Israel is not under threat, I go on and think about other things even when I live in Tel Aviv. So that is also the potential solution, uh, because where we have to get hope is when Adinimajad um, created this exhibit making fun of the Holocaust in Iran, in Tehran, it embarrassed the Iranians, and they had to pay people to go, because the Iranians said, too much. And what they're also saying there is we're not threatened enough for that stage. If we can turn this around, 
and lower the threat, uh, as my grandfather would have told me, um, in every generation. Uh, it's not that anti-Semitism will go away, but the threat of anti-Semitism, in other words, for something happened to it, at least here and now, will also uh, uh, dissipate. Uh, or at least that's where the theory takes us. So, thank you for your attention. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And uh, look forward to a very fruitful day of discussion. Westerners failed to grasp, grasp the dangers associated with anti-Semitism in the Muslim world. Neil is a visiting professor at ESA and he's a tenured professor of psychology at William Patterson University in New Jersey. Uh, he's also the director of the honors programs in social sciences at William Patterson. He received a PhD in psychology at Harvard University and a master's degree in comparative history from Brandeis as well as a, a BA in history from Brandeis. Um, he's published widely in his last uh, book, he authored a book called Bad Faith, The Dangers of Religious Extremism. Um, he's also wrote a book called Mass Hate, The Rise of Global Genocide and Terror. He's written widely on issues of um, social psychology of hate, terrorism, law, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and anti-Semitism in general. So it's a pleasure to have Neil back with us again. The paper that I wrote for this conference is actually pretty long, so what I'm going to do is um, I'll read a few sections from it, but for the most part I will talk to you about the paper, and I believe the paper will be available um, through the website. The, um, the title of the paper, Why Well-Intentioned Westerners Failed to Grasp the Dangers Associated with Anti-Semitism in the Muslim World. It's a long one. All my uh, book titles were two-word titles. And I was trying to think of how, how to shorten this. I, I, I didn't come up with, um, with much. Um, the one thing I came up with was not so important, which I thought encapsulated the way that most people think about Muslim anti-Semitism. But then I realized that that would give anybody talking about my paper a very easy way to put it down by simply saying, Kressel's paper is not so important. Uh, for now, I'm going with it, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it some thought. Um, many observers of the Middle East and world affairs just do not seem very much concerned about contemporary Muslim and Arab attitudes toward the Jews. These observers, some of whom are themselves Jewish, have largely dismissed warnings about the rise of a dangerous new anti-Semitism in the Middle East. 
as altogether unjustified, overblown, or otherwise unworthy of significant attention. Although some in this group of skeptics are unconcerned because despite their political interests, they remain uninformed about what is really going on with regard to the Jews, many others view warnings from mainstream Jewish organizations as the byproduct of an overly sensitive Jewish psychology, or worse, as a nefarious political move designed to divert the gaze of honorable people from Israel's own human rights abuses. Even among those who agree that a new virulent form of Jew hatred has indeed taken hold in the Middle East, many maintain that for a wide variety of reasons, this bigotry should not become a focal point of world attention. All in all, human rights activists, progressive academics, social scientists, left-leaning political leaders, and others whom one might expect to stand stalwartly opposed to overt and extreme bigotry have been largely silent. Surprising to some, former President Bush, hardly a darling of self-proclaimed progressive forces, did take some steps in the right direction back in November 2003 when he called on world leaders to strongly oppose anti-Semitism, which poisons public debates over the future of the Middle East. But on the whole, right-leaning American politicians have not been notably better than those on the left. There has been no alarm, almost no research, and precious little concern from outside the Jewish community and allied organizations. My own field of social psychology once a leader in the battle against segregation and anti-black racism in the United States, has failed even to begin to address problems associated with Muslim and Arab anti-Semitism. My purpose here is to, is to begin to answer the question, why? Holocaust movies command huge audiences, and books and educational programs documenting the Nazi assault on European Jewry are still a growth industry. Social scientific studies in the United States show fairly low levels of anti-Semitism when judged by historical standards. There's been some small rise due largely to, um, change to um, black and Hispanic attitudes towards Jews. Students in many schools are taught the fundamentals of racism and sexism even before they are taught the fundamentals of reading and writing. Both major political parties in the United States claim an unshakable commitment to the state of Israel. Why then, under such circumstances, have so few observers from outside the Jewish community been able to understand and grasp the dangerous nature of revitalized anti-Semitism in the Middle East? Now, um, here's where I'm going to stop reading and start talking about the paper. The, um, first of all, though I am a psychologist by training and although I have done um, a fair amount of psychological work, this is not a psychological paper. It's largely an attempt to classify some of the reactions to the charge of Muslim anti-Semitism, to look at some of the different types of arguments that people have been put forth, and then to try to respond to them one by one. Um, in order to do this, though, you first, in a paper, have to make the case that there really is such a thing as Muslim anti-Semitism, that it really is a very serious phenomenon, and that phenomenon, and that it is, I believe, genocidal in intent, although the um, question remains whether it, can, um, it will become, you know, have, have consequences like that. 
Um, so the first portion of the paper really summarizes evidence. I don't systematically build the case. There are a lot of other places where that's been done, but I do provide all sorts of evidence. Um, I will just share with you a little bit of the flavor of what I present here, but then I'm going to go, along, go forward and skip um, this portion of the paper. One, of the, um, one place to start is from a sermon that just um, Hamas TV, a Friday sermon, which was broadcast on Al-Aqsa TV. This was about um, a month ago. So we're talking about something fairly recent. And that um, this is the April, actually the April 3rd sermon. And they're talking about the protocols of the elders of Zion, something which is largely taken in um, many sections of the Middle East as an authoritative source, even though everyone has known for, uh, for decades that this was a forgery of the Tsarist secret police. Um, the Jews' famous book, the existence of which is denied by reasonable people among them, by the reasonable people among them, the so-called protocols of the elders of Zion, but we call it the Protocols of the Idiots of Zion. In this book, the Jews included their plan to besiege the whole world by land, by air, by sea, by ideology, by economy, and by the media, as is happening today, my brothers in the nation of the Prophet Muhammad. The Jews today are weaving their spider webs in order to encircle our nation like a bracelet encircles the wrist, and in order to spread corruption throughout the world. But the protocols were not the only source cited for hostility to the Jews. One might expect anger, whether justified or not, to stem from the recent Israeli military action in Gaza. But the sermon cites a more distant and eternal source of fury. We Muslims know best the nature of the Jews, because the Quran has informed us about this, and because the pure Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad has devoted much space to informing the Muslims of the truth about the Jews and their hostility to Islam and its prophet. Now, of course, the Hamas sermon is hardly the final authority on what the Quran really says, but the sermon's policy recommendation was clear. Allah willing, the moment will come when their property will be destroyed and their sons annihilated until not a single Jew or Zionist is left on the face of the earth. Now that's fairly clear. Not a single Jew or Zionist left on the face of the earth. First of all, no Jew or Zionist face of the earth. So we're talking about everywhere. Now, um, needless to say, this is coming from someone who does not have the power to put his plan into action anytime soon, but it shows you something about the motivation. Um, around the same time, in the um, Saudi newspaper Al Jazeera, this poem appeared by the Saudi poet Sa'ad al-Bawardi. And here I'll just read you this one. You were merciful, O Hitler. That is my conclusion when I see around me the cruel acts of the descendants of apes. You were wise, O Hitler, to rid the world of some of these wild pigs. But they have spawned a gang whose heart is filled with blind hatred. O Hitler, the descendants of apes, none are more cruel and horrifying than they are. Now, um, you would expect poets to be given a certain amount of poetic license, and that when you, whenever I hear somebody building a case based on poetry or editorial cartoons, I say that that's really not the best form of evidence. However, um, and also this is after the Gaza war, and there's a lot of anger coming from that. But the, um, if you look at sales of Mein Kampf, 
that Mein Kampf became a bestseller in the uh, Palestinian territories, in the West Bank and Gaza, in 1999. At this time, Israel was smack in the middle of the peace process. They were trying to, um, they were it was ultimately going to culminate in an offer for a two-state solution that is generally judged by observers in the West to have been very favorable to Palestinians. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, I don't remember the number, but it's something like 60 different editions in the, um, in the Muslim and Arab world have appeared. And that these have appeared uh, many times over the last few decades. So what we are talking about is not just a, a reaction to the war in Gaza, although that certainly intensified things. Anyway, I go on and on citing this type of evidence. The, um, because I am a, um, a social psychologist, we do look for quantitative evidence. And I've talked to many colleagues who say, well, why can't you show me some data? And I say to them, well, part of the, that I, I did write one of the articles that I discuss in here is something that I wrote in the Chronicle of Higher Education back in 2004, where I charged that social scientists have largely ignored Muslim anti-Semitism. If they've ignored the problem, there's not going to be any quantitative data. Now, there's um, a lot of reasons for this. You don't go around some of these areas where there's rampant anti-Semitism, saying that you'd like to explore people's attitudes. You're a Jewish researcher. You know, you're sponsored by the Anti-Defamation League, and you'd like to know their opinions on the Jews. That those types of scholars just don't seem to um, to last very long. And I, um, I I call this the Daniel Pearl effect. And that drew a lot of negative um, response. What I'm saying is you only have to kill one person. And Daniel Pearl was not, by the way, somebody who was out there in terms of advocating for Jewish interests, um, although he, he was Jewish. So you, if, you can just imagine if somebody um, like myself were to go into these areas and start expressing my views and doing research, it's not going to happen. But that's only part of the uh, problem. The other part is that in the social scientific community, there is very largely a sentiment that we've all got to get along. And the way that we get along is by um, trying to encourage Muslim moderates. And that we want to find people who are very influential Muslim moderates people who have a lot of power in their own community, but are also moderate. And one of the problems is that a lot of these people are not moderate about anti-Semitism. They're not moderate about Jews. They might be moderate about things like, um, for example, uh, Sheikh al-Sadeus, who was the imam, was the imam from um, the main mosque in Mecca. He makes a comment that the 9-11 attacks were wrong, and Muslims shouldn't have done that. So right away, the BBC calls him a moderate, and they, um, when he comes to London, they welcome him with open arms. But at the same time, he says suicide attacks against Israelis and American troops in Iraq, well, the ones against Israelis are a good thing, the ones in Iraq under some circumstances. And so, you know, the moderates aren't always that moderate. And so if you really are trying to encourage moderates, and you want to get the ones that... Um, are truly against anti-Semitism in a loud way, you're dealing with very marginally important people often. And when you want to deal with people who have a large following, then what happens is that you're dealing with people who are not free of anti-Semitism. So maybe better not to explore, maybe um, to leave, in the fight against bigotry, maybe the idea is to leave just this one stone um, unturned. And that, that seems to be the, the attitude that prevails. But anyway, there is some data. 
Um, the Pew Global Attitudes Project in 2005, a group with no readily apparent agenda with regard to the topic, found th these figures for Americans about holding favorable views of Jews. 77% of Americans hold favorable views of Jews. Only 7% hold unfavorable ones. For Germans, 67% hold favorable views of Jews. For Spaniards, 58%, uh, Frenchmen, 82%, Russians, 63%. All of these in this survey said they held favorable views of Jews. Now, a recent ADL survey, um, I think, shows that these numbers are worse than they appeared at this time. But you're still seeing overwhelmingly in the West that the Jews are held in pretty high, high regard. Now, if you move to Jordan, you find 99 to 100% with unfavorable views of the Jews. The number for Jordan for favorable views of the Jews was 0%. I never see 0% in surveys. Um, and then um, in Morocco, a, a moderate pro-Western country, 88% hold um, negative views of the Jews. In Pakistan, 74% are negatively inclined. In Indonesia, 76%. Even in Turkey, a potential member of the EU, 60% hold negative views of the Jews. So um, there's, I think there's not much of a problem building a case for the existence of this Muslim anti-Semitism. So for me, the question is, why is it that other people don't get this? Um, I've, um, what I did in the paper, and I'm not going to have time to um, share all of this with you, is that I analyzed um, a lot. I, I've written, um, I wrote three articles in the last few years dealing with Muslim anti-Semitism. They all came at it from a different point of view. One was trying to ask the question of um, how dangerous is it? Just what are, the, what are the barriers to these sentiments actually becoming operative? Why is it, in other words, given the existence of this hatred, um, that there, haven't, there hasn't been a larger body count, and, um, and what's the potential for that changing. Another one dealt with why the social science community has neglected Muslim anti-Semitism, and yet another one was um, dealing with a causal model for why there is so much hatred of the, um, the Jews in the Muslim and Arab world. This last one was published in a journal, and the entire issue was dedicated to people responding to my argument. And most of the responses were fairly negative to the, um, to the argument that I made. So what I did in the paper here was I gathered together a lot of the arguments against uh, Muslim anti-Semitism being important. A lot of the things, some of them were letters to the editor written in response to things that I've written. Some were from this issue, some were other people's work. And I kind of gathered that together as my source of data. And then I, um, I tried to classify the types of responses or the types of reasons that people gave for why Muslim anti-Semitism was just not so important. Um, and in the paper, I include some of the, the letters. I, I don't know, I guess I have about 10 more minutes, five. five. Okay, I'm not going to read the letters then. I'll, I'll get right to my um, system of classification. I think that they fall into 10 useful categories. And I will read down the list. Um, I'm probably going to only have time to read to you my assessment of what the arguments are. And then you'll have to go online to see how I kind of develop responses to each of them. But some of them are, de um, um, some of them are definitional arguments. They say what we, we say is anti-Semitism is not really anti-Semitism. 
The, the first one is, is so silly that it's hard to believe all the attention it gets, which is the argument that Muslims can't be anti-Semites because they are Semites. That shows up a lot, and you just, it's, anti-Semitism gets its meaning historically. And that um, I would just, I'd almost be inclined to just abandon the use of the word anti-Semitism and just say Jew hatred, except that that is sort of conceding a point that somehow this type of Jew hatred might be different and better than the past type. So I'm not quite ready to give that up. Um, I also think that when you write anti-Semitism, you should write it without the hyphen, which, um, which sort of implies that it is a historically defined concept rather than something which is against Semites. Um, but anyway, I'd like to quote from um, Robert Wistrich, who said that um, um, the membership of Palestinian Arab leader Haj Amin al-Husseini in the Arabic-speaking branch of the Semitic linguistic family did not deter Heinrich Himmler, the ruthless head of the SS, from wishing him every success in his fight against the foreign Jew. So that, um, or Bernard Lewis, who says that um, anti-Semitism has never anywhere been concerned with anyone but Jews and is therefore available to Arabs as to other people as an option should they choose it. Um, the next argument is that all criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. Well, I, I've never heard anybody say all criticism, and I, I, I get this line from, uh, from David Hirsch, who was at Yeezo, wrote a very good paper on anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, and that he says that um, no one really ever makes this argument. And there's nobody in the Jewish community who says all criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. This is always a straw man thing. And that, there are, that Sharansky and others have proposed very logical schemes for dis differentiating between anti-criticism anti of Israel when it's so extreme that it becomes anti-Semitism and when it's not. But anyway, a good portion of what we are talking about doesn't involve anti-Israel sentiments. It's anti-Semitism, pure and simple. And so that even if you were going to cross out that whole category, there's plenty left. Um, the next one is no one hates the Jews, they only hate the Zionists. Um, and the, if you look at the way the term Zionist is used, you'll find that it often refers to medieval Zionists. Or you'll hear that it talks about um, the Zionists living in um, South America. And what, what they mean by Zionists is very often so obviously Jew that they talk about, for example, the Zionist book, the Talmud. That, that has no historical meaning at all, and I think that the, um, anyway, you can, you can do away with that argument pretty quickly. The, the next argument is more difficult. This comes from, um, well, one place it comes from is a woman named Sumbul Ali Karamali, who um, wrote a book called The Muslim Next Door. This was a, a, a nice book where she tried to emphasize positive aspects of Islam, and she clearly is somebody with her heart in the right place. But her position is that there is nothing anti-Semitic about Islam, and there's no point talking about Islam, um, Islamic anti-Semitism. Let's focus on the positive. Let's accentuate the positive. And um, she then goes through and talks about some elements of Muslim history where Jews were very well treated. And the problem with all of this is that um, she is trying to bring about the right kind of world, but simply by assuming that it's already here, she doesn't make it so. There are many, many, many examples of people who claim to be acting under the um, justification of the Islamic religion and who can cite all sorts of religious texts. 
and there's plenty of historical evidence about mistreatment of Jews in the past, and that, that belongs in the discussion. Um, okay, the next, next a variant on that argument is that nice people don't criticize other people's religious beliefs. And that since this comes out of religion, it's, it's basically something you're not allowed to talk about. Well, the, the problem here is that religion becomes a shield for almost anything. And that under the, um, under the heading of religion, we have seen all manner of evil justified. So that um, that argument is, is simply going to um, make it impossible for us to, to address all sorts of evil in the world. The next one is Islamophobia is the real problem. The answer here is that, Islam, that hostility towards Muslims is sometimes a big problem. And that um, Deborah Lipstadt said, if they asked her, well, what's worse, anti-Semitism or, or hostility towards Muslims? She said, this is too broad a question to answer easily. It depends where, what country, and what situation. I think there is more overt anti-Muslim feeling in the US today and a far greater fear of Muslims than Jews. I think the situation in France and the United Kingdom is quite different. Um, well, the, um, that's, that was Lipstadt's position. On the other hand, it seems to me that there is nowhere on earth that you see anybody sanctioning the, any official leaders, sanctioning the types of policies that were offering the types of rhetoric that we hear the Muslim leaders offering against the Jews, um, offering that same type of rhetoric of Muslims as targets. To the extent that they are, they're outcasts from society and they're denounced by every head of state everywhere. They're denounced by Jewish leaders everywhere. So it would seem to me that, um, um, that to equate the two is, isn't quite right. And um, the other thing is that Jews are, despite anti-Semitic fantasies, a tiny group and far less able to defend their interests than the 100 times larger Muslim and Arab communities. Uh, more importantly, religion and ethnicity do not confer a protective shield behind which one may engage in inappropriate and destructive behavior. If a large, group, a large segment of a group is anti-Semitic, saying so does not make one a bigot. If religious leaders preach hatred, saying one does not make one a hater. Okay, aren't Jews anti-Muslim is another type of um, criticism you hear. Um, of course, some are. I have not seen evidence that Jews are more anti-Muslim than other Westerners, but the fact that some are means that that's a problem within the Jewish community, and that, um, it, that there's no that being aware of Muslim anti-Semitism and fighting it does not require closing one's eyes to evil that's being perpetrated um, um, perpetrated. Um, well, against Muslims or perpetrated by Muslim leaders in the name of their faith. Okay, next one is those who um, call attention to Islamic and Arab anti-Semitism are painting with too broad a brush. Well, there, um, there are some handful theorists out there. These are theorists who claim that the bigotry is only a handful of people. I think that there is not evidence that it is a handful. I think the evidence shows, that, particularly the survey evidence that I showed, the, pre the prevalence of anti-Semitic um, uh, messages in the media without denunciation, all of this argues that it's a fairly large group of the Muslim community. However, um, there is the danger that you might interpret the charge of anti-Semitism to imply that all Muslims are anti-Semitic, or that Muslims are necessarily anti-Semitic, and such um, inferences are obviously unjust 
incorrect and insulting to millions of Muslims. In addition, they're counterproductive because in the West, the whole strategy of engaging the Muslim community involves um, convincing them that the West is a hospitable home. To people who are concerned with um, anti-terrorism, the last thing that you want is to send out a message that being Muslim is somehow illegitimate. And so, it's, um, so, so to say that lots of Muslims are anti-Semitic, it seems to me to be factual. To infer from that that all must be or that all are seems to me to be wrong. Um, the next one is, the, ne uh, the next forms of argument are political spillover arguments. Here they'll say things like, the real issue is not hostility towards Jews, but sometimes there's a little understandable spillover from the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, I think, and then uh, related to that would be, how else would we expect people to react to all those Israeli transgressions? Well, these are really two different things. To say that the Arab-Israeli conflict is causally important in creating Muslim anti-Semitism, that certainly is logically and factually true. It's a partial cause of what's going on. To say that that's all of the story is wrong, but to say it's a big part is, is correct. Um, now, to, to move on to say, how else would we expect people to react to all those Israeli transgressions? Well, this then becomes an argument about how many Israeli transgressions and how bad are they? And uh, I, I get into that in the paper, I can't summarize that one real quickly. But the, uh, the point is that regardless of Israel's transgressions, I think there was a talk here by Yossi um, Klein Halevi, and he said that um, Israel um, doesn't have to be the best in order to defend itself against people who say that it's the worst. I can see I'm running out of time. I just want to list some of the other arguments without their refutations. Um, there's the argument of bad history, that Muslims have always treated the Jews well, so how can we say that what we are witnessing now is a serious instance of dangerous bigotry? Well, um, first of all, even if they had always treated the Jews well, it, um, it wouldn't make what's going on now any better. And secondly, that's a misreading of the history. Um, next argument, it's obviously, it's historically inaccurate to say Islam contains the seeds of anti-Semitic belief. Well, here I cite all sorts of verses from the Quran and from the Hadith, which are obviously anti-Semitic. Um, the Christians, another argument, the Christians are deeper enemies of the Jews. I think that there's no, um, there's no evidence right now that the level of anti-Semitism in the Christian community is anywhere near what's uh, going on in the Muslim community. Um, then there are bad motives arguments um, and ad hominem arguments, which are essentially irrelevant. Uh, um, but there's a lot of arguments which are benign neglect arguments. These are arguments which say that focusing on anti-Semitism, even though it exists, is not in the interests of the Arab-Israeli peace process. And pursuing that road is the best way to reduce Muslim anti-Semitism. Well, how can you resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict given all the hostility towards Jews? Or focusing on anti-Semitism is not a good idea if we hope to encourage Muslim moderates uh, and it does not advance President Obama's new plan to reach out to the Muslim world. Or focusing on anti-Semitism is not in the interests of the war on terror. Um, I argue in here that all of these are basically fantasy positions. Um, and then lastly, there are people who are anti-Semitic and say it's, um, it's not the problem is not anti-Semitism, the problem is the Jews, and you'd be surprised how often this appears in print. 
Um, there are distractions, and then there are very legitimate arguments about just how much anti-Semitism is there and how significant is it. I think that there reasonable people can debate over whether this is a central problem, whether the anti-Semitism is genocidal, whether its consequences will be horrible or just bad. I think the, the question of intensity is a legitimate issue. Finally, just one last comment. I did not get into any of the psychology of why people hold the positions that they advance in here. That's why I said it was not really a psychologist's paper. However, there is, there's all sorts of speculation that you can get into. My problem with this is that I feel like, given the politicized nature of this conflict, an attempt to jump to the psychological level of analysis before you've actually dealt with the expressed arguments would be um, received as explaining away the problem or somehow attacking the, the critic rather than attacking the argument. So I thought first we need to kind of catalog and respond to the, um, the arguments that exist. And that's, that's what I tried to do in the paper. Thank you very much, Neil. And the third and final paper of this uh, session will be from Edith Shalev. Edith's, uh, the title of her paper is called Coaching for Killing, the Motivational Mechanisms Underlying Islamist uh, Terrorist Ideology. So Edith is a postdoctorate fellow here at YISA. Her research draws from both her clinical and uh, experimental social psychology background and perspectives and is focused on motivational mechanisms which underline human behavior. She received a BA, uh, Magna Cum Laude, in Psychology and Special Education at Tel Aviv University. She did a Master's and also received Magna Cum Laude in Counseling Psychology from Tel Aviv. And then she did her PhD, which she graduated with distinction, in Clinical Psychology from Haifa University. She's worked as a therapist in supervising capacity at the Child Study Center of the Schneider Hospital uh, in Israel. She was a senior psychologist and taught at the school, the school for psychotherapy. She taught at Tel Aviv University and the Open University in Israel and was a fellow in social psychology in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland. And then she also was a fellow in clinical psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Florida. So it's really a pleasure to have Edith here. And Edith was also a major um, asset in helping to organize this whole event. So it's a pleasure to have you here. <laughs>